Hey, welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. We're glad you're tuning into this episode. Uh, we are a viewer and listener supported podcast, so we really appreciate you listening, watching on YouTube. We really encourage you to subscribe to whatever platform you're using. If you're on YouTube, hit that subscribe button, or if you're on Apple or however you listen to a podcast, be sure and subscribe. We greatly appreciate it. Also, make comments if you like it and share it if you like it. We really need people to make comments and share the episodes that you like. And then also, if you're not already a supporter, we really would encourage you to go to spiritualityadventures.com and you can pick a tier and we have bonus content for every type of giver. These are this is a nonprofit, so they're tax deductible donations, but we do provide bonus content for those who uh, are supporters. So be a part of the team, help support Spirituality Adventures, and we're so glad you're tuning into this episode. Hey, welcome folks to Spirituality Adventures. Glad you're tuning in for this episode. I have Brian Zahn back for a second time, and we, uh, we did an interview, I don't know, several months ago. Maybe, maybe even, maybe even almost a year ago. I can't remember. Probably last spring or early last year. On two of your books, um, I, I understand now you, you're getting what 14, 15 books out, something like that. Now, Brian, I have eleven. The eleventh comes out in February. Okay, and I'm I'm supposed to be writing the twelfth one. I haven't got very far into it, but I've signed the contract and I know what it is. I just got to write the thing. <laughs> And you've got a, a new one coming out. Yeah, the new one is The February. Wood Between the Worlds, A Poetic Theology of the Cross. Okay. And it comes out February 6th, kind of, you know, right before Ash Wednesday and Lent. Cool. I finished writing that book in July of 2022. <laughs> cool. So, you know, it's I finished writing it. A year and a half ago. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, but that's kind of typical with publishers. I mean, it could have come out this fall, but they wanted to wait to kind of time it with Lent. And so that's, that's, that's great. It's great. Yeah, I just yeah. I just recorded the audio book, went to Chicago, did that. And so everything, we're just waiting just for somebody to, to pull a trigger somewhere. Cool. <laughs> and the book comes out. Well, just for those who might be tuning in and don't know who you are, um, we we have done one podcast previously on two of your books, and Brian is the uh, founding pastor, lead pastor of Word of Life Church in St. Joe, Missouri. So we're, you know, like I'm sitting in Neighbors. my house, Brian's probably in his house. We're probably 45 yeah. minutes drive apart right, right. now. And St. Joe is north of Kansas City, about 45 minute drive. And uh, Brian founded your the church in what year? November of 81, 42 years ago. Yeah. And so literally, you know, even when I was getting close to 30 years of pastoring vineyard in Kansas City, I, I was all of a sudden one of the longer tenured pastors yeah. in the whole Kansas City area, right? Me and me and Adam Hamilton started our churches yeah. in 1990. And, you know, pastors come and go so fast that when you when you put in 42 years, I'm guessing there's not another <laughs> pastor in St. Joe that's I don't think so. Got no. you. I can't I, I wouldn't know who it is. I don't think so. Yeah, I doubt it. I mean, I'm not aware of any. Um, but anyway, and man, you have had 
a crazy journey. I'm going to, you know, from the early days of the Jesus movement all the way to kind of a transitional time in your church life where you really, yeah, where you really turn the corner uh, with guiding your church into a new direction. Why don't you just briefly give us your five minute version of okay. that transition with your history in your church? And then I'm going to tie that into because we're going to be talking about Advent. That's going to be the focus. And Brian has this book that he came out with last year called The Anticipated Christ. And we'll, once you give your history, a brief history, we'll dive into Advent. Like I grew up in a non-Adventist tradition. You know, yeah, so die. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, I'm excited to talk about Advent from your perspective and how you moved into it and all that kind of stuff. But give us your history first. Yeah, well, I, I, uh, I encountered Jesus in the Jesus movement of the 1970s. As a teenager, had a pretty dramatic conversion. And by the time I was 17, I was leading a ministry. It was a coffee house. If you know anything about the Jesus movement, a lot of people probably don't. Uh, the, the coffee houses were the center. They weren't necessarily local churches. They were gatherings for young people that centered about around music, actually. I mean, it's a music venue. And so, I was booking these, you know, Jesus movement acts, you know, Phil Kagey and Paul Clark, you know, from the Kansas City area and Keith Green and Sweet Comfort Band, all those kinds of things. Yeah. Love song. And but well, go ahead. No, I just, uh, you know, I had Kurt Bartlett on my staff, you know, Kurt, I know Kurt. And yeah. um, um, I had Tommy. I started a, a thing called Fountain City Music. Mm -hmm. Just to invest in my writers and singers and songwriters, and I had Tommy Coombs on my board. Yep, He's one of the founders. That's that's my world. That's where I came <laughs> I know, from. I was a little bit younger than I was, about as young as you could be, and be a leader in that movement. I mean, I was seventeen, right. <laughs> and right. I was leading this ministry. Yeah, and uh, by the time I was twenty-two, we thought, well, it really has morphed into essentially a church, and so we just started meeting on Sunday mornings, changed the name up from the catacombs to Word of Life Church. So, yeah, I've been doing this for 42 years. In one sense, I've been doing this for 47 years, and I'm only 64. So, so you know, it's, it's life's work. So We're just two years apart, man. Yeah. yeah. So, so um, Word of Life Church officially began in November of 81, and it stayed small. It was a small church for seven years, under 100, or as, as my wife will usually say, yeah, like way under 100. <laughs> and, uh, and then it started growing. And I, to this day, I don't really have a full explanation as to why that happened. I mean, there's some things I do understand. A lot of it just is a mystery, but the church began to grow tremendously. And we went from you know, you'll appreciate this, Fred. I don't know if any, <laughs> how, how many people appreciate it. We went from being in a little broken down Methodist church building that we bought, I kid you not, for $6,500. Okay. It was almost dilapidated. We went from there to moving into a 2,500 seat church sanctuary that we constructed. Yeah. In seven years. Isn't that crazy? In seven years. You know, I mean, that's just like, uh, it was like a rocket ship. Yeah. And that that was fun. It was exciting. They were heady days. What years were those? Which seven years? Uh, were this is the like, 90s. Just 90s, think the 90s. Yeah. You know, in the 90s. We're just, yeah. Because I'm, 
you don't, you wouldn't remember this, but I remember the the first time I met you was in the nineties. I was knocking on doors, starting Vineyard hmm. Church, like in 90, 91, 92. And I had knocked on Hal Linhart's door and I was starting a vineyard and it was right in yeah. the midst. It was right. He was literally talking on the phone with Ernie Gruen about yeah, the, these are all these. About, I was part, about the Ernie whole Kansas was city. My pastor. Yeah. And he was talking about the Kansas city fellowship, Mike Bickle, Ernie Gruen conflict while yeah. I knocked on the door, starting a vineyard church. And that's how I got to meet Hal. Hal <laughs> was gracious enough to invite me to his Midwest minister fellowship. Yeah. I started going to that and you and your worship leader showed up at that one <laughs> time and talked about, you know, leading people to Jesus. And, yeah. and this was the heyday, you know, one drop. Well, it, drop. For us, it was the heyday. Remember that one, so that song, one drop. <laughs> yeah. Yes. That came out of, that came out of, uh, Clint Brown wrote that. Okay. That was from, that was, uh, Rod Parsley, World Harvest Church, Columbus. Yeah, yeah. So that's, you know, that's where I come that's from. That's when I met you. kind of stuff. That's when I met you. Yeah. And, um, that's, it was great in one sense, you know, it was exciting. It was an adventure, but about the year 2000, this is, I'm turning 40. I began to have a growing unease by the metrics that Americans like to measure success in ministry. We had it made. I mean, everything's good in the sense of, you know, big numbers, money, budget, buildings, all that. It's all good. It's going great. But I'm feeling like it's thin. I'm feeling like it's, uh, is, this, is this the best we can do? And I, I couldn't necessarily identify what my uh, dissatisfaction was. I just was aware of it. And so what I started doing, I started sort of just, I didn't say anything about it. I didn't talk to people about it, but I began reading Church Fathers and Philosophy, which I like philosophy. And uh, I had an aptitude for it. I liked it as a kid. It's like a teenager. But then, you know, you get in, in the charismatic word of faith. You know, they, they, people don't read philosophy, you know, right. so that's just aside. <laughs> and so I began to return to something that I actually loved. I'm reading philosophy. I'm reading um, – I'm not really reading – I'm reading patristics. I'm not reading any of the what you would call good contemporary theology. I was, I was kind of off my radar. Mm-hmm. And that went on for about four years until 2004, 20 years ago, coming up on 20 years ago. Uh, this is a wild story. I, uh, I, I don't even want to share this. Oh, well, I will. I began the first 22 days of 2004, so just coming up 20 years ago, mm-hmm. where I, I didn't do anything for those first 22 days of 2004 other than pray. You know, I was in our prayer chapel all day. I would sleep at night and preach when I was supposed to. I didn't eat. I didn't do anything else. I didn't go anywhere. I lost. I mean, I got down to 135 pounds. I was, you know, people thought I was dying. And in one sense, I was (laughs) like the whole first half of life was dying. And a lot of things happened real quick after that. I, 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 I read Dallas Willard's The Divine Conspiracy. And then I went on this binge where I was reading hours, hours of academic theology every night, mm. just 
and and never never did it feel like work. See, I did. I had I had no training. I I didn't go to seminary. Didn't go to a Bible college. I just was this kid that sort of accidentally stumbled into being the pastor of a church, and and just was. I learned how to pastor by doing it, but I had no theological training yeah. at all, zero. And so I started having my late night seminary by just reading, um, just just devouring books. I mean, if I showed you the books that I read during let's say two or three years, you would, you would go, wow, you read all that. And yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so I just, I just made up for this deficit. Of course, I would found the good stuff. Now I'd struck gold, you know, I'm reading, I read, and I would, what I would do is I'd find an author and I'd read all of them. Right. I read all, everything Tom yeah, Wright had written, read yeah. everything Brueggemann had written, yep. read, yeah. you know, everything, whoever, Miroslav Volf. I didn't yeah. read all of Carl Bart, but I read a lot. And uh, <laughs> that's a tough read, man. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't read all the of translation, them. you know, that, the English translation of him is it's clunky. I know. Yeah. It's super clunky. So so that began to change me. And it changed my preaching. And I eventually, you know, in August of 2004, this is very early on in the journey, I said, I, I announced to my church, I'm packing my bags from the charismatic movement. I'm moving on. Now I did it with enough rhetorical skill. That you know, people applauded and all that until I actually did it, right. and and then when the church began to, and there were numerous changes we made that were less than massively popular, um, but I think I think most of the people could have survived those changes until I began critiquing America as not a kind of biblical Israel but a kind of biblical Babylon. And began to make it very clear that there could be no easy alliance between the kingdom of Christ and the empire of America. And that was, that was, I mean, it's true. Yeah. It <laughs> and I, true. I, I still preach that, but that we lost probably 1500 people over that. And, uh, but that was, yeah, it was a long time ago. It was very painful. It was, it was extreme. It was painful for 10 years from 2004 to 2014. Perry and I pretty much lived in constant state of pain. Actually, it was it was maybe even a little longer friends. than that. You're losing friends. You're losing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. These, You're were losing just, these weren't like Christ. just parishioners. These were people that we did life with yep. that maybe I had led to Jesus, baptized, married, right. baptized their kids, married their kids. Yeah. And they're leaving saying I'm backslidden. And I feel like if anything, I feel like a front slid right. you know, <laughs> that I'm that I'm more committed to Jesus and his kingdom. Yeah. 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 Okay, so so that's the story in a nutshell in that small beginnings, Jesus movement, big heyday, a theological church transition that took – it took 10 years to make the transition, and then it took um, another two years after that. After everything was settled, it took a couple more years for Perry and I to heal. It took us actually walking our first Camino de Santiago. That's what healed us. Mm. And um, – Today, uh, you know, when I said I packed my bags, I mean, it does mean I put some stuff in the <laughs> and I didn't just forsake everything. Yeah. I, we took some stuff with us. But but what we've added and this is I'm going to give you an easy segue is we've become very um, enchanted by the great tradition. And so you mentioned that, you know. You didn't grow up in an Adventish 
church, neither did I, you know, but now the book of common prayer is very influential in how we structure our services and what we do and how we pray. And we pay tremendous attention to the church calendar, have grown to love it. And so if people, if people say, well, what is word of life? Cause you know, we are a non-denominational church. And so it's hard to pigeonhole us. And I don't have a really apt description other than to say, well, we're, we're rock and roll Anglican. <laughs> There's a lot of Anglican components, but we're still rock and roll. <laughs> yeah, you got it. So let's let's dive into Advent and uh, okay. the. Um, so, like I said, I didn't grow up. I grew up Southern Baptist, so we didn't. You know, we obviously celebrated Christmas and Easter, but we really didn't follow a liturgical calendar. Right. And then when I started Vineyard, you know. We didn't either there, you know, we didn't do it there. So at some point in my vineyard pilgrimage, um, I, I thought, God, I, I want to start doing Advent. And, and I, that was probably over 10 years ago that I started the Advent wreath and I started, you know, building up to Christmas Eve. And uh, I'm curious, um, what, when did you start? Did you do Advent all along early on? Before? No, 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 no. I mean, you know, we're, we were a Jesus movement, then Word of Faith Charismatic Church, and our church calendar pretty much consisted of Christmas and Easter, which makes a point, Fred, that, that all churches like the Christian calendar a little bit because mm-hmm. that's where you get Christmas and Easter. I mean, right. I don't think they – I don't know if they often – they just say, well, no, it's just, you know, December 25th, that's Christmas. Well, it's Christmas because of the church calendar. Mm-hmm. And Easter, you know, you got to calculate it. I can't remember the recipe for calculating Easter. Yeah. But anyway, that's church calendar stuff. Right. And so, well, the calendar's bigger than Christmas and Easter. And so, with us, it really began, you know, like it was part of our embrace of the great tradition that began 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, I say it began, you know, we're much more established in that tradition now than we were 20 years ago. So it has been gradual over the last 20 years. But uh, it really does structure the life of our church as far as worship and to a certain degree preaching. Mm -hmm. Um, We'll come back to Advent in a second here. But along with the church calendar, there is also a lectionary, which the by lectionary we mean a series of readings of scripture for public reading uh, that take you through the entire year. And it's tied in with the calendar mm-hmm. related to one another. And from Advent, which just began this past Sunday, yep. through um, Pentecost, which is six months, we more or less, I mean, we're, we give ourselves liberty, but we more or less preach according to the lectionary. Okay. Usually, usually the gospel portion, the gospel reading, but we we can be flexible with that. And then and then during what's called ordinary time from Pentecost until you start up Advent, that's when we give ourselves the freedom to do our series and all that sort of stuff like we've always done. So it's a it's a it's a blending of that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, I've learned to love Advent. You you'll remember you'll remember. I'm sure I'm just, I'm guessing, but I'm pretty sure I'll be right on this. That in your vineyard days, you would have a certain group of people in your church that would get all excited about Jewish holidays. Sure. And, you know, Yom Kippur or, you know, Shavuot or, you know, all those things. Yep. And which is fine. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm against that, but it's like 
there is this impulse that people want to be able to tell time in a sacred way, not just a secular way. And they want to belong to something that is very rooted. But so, so what you really need to say to those people is that's fine, but you know, Christians actually have their calendar too. Right. It's, it's, it's not in this Bible because it comes after the canon has been completed. But I, I talk about the church calendar as brought to you by the same people who gave you the New Testament. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I mean, along with giving us the New Testament, the other church also gave us uh, a, a calendar and a, a series of holy days mm-hmm. and fasts and feasts and all of that to be observed. And they they knew that to really form people in the faith, you needed those sorts of things. Yeah. And so Christmas and Easter were so important, they've always hung on. Yes. But but in the more radical forms of Reformation and, and low church Protestantism, everything else got dropped out. Yeah. And all that does is create an impoverished Christianity. So to return to the value of, uh, of the church calendar, that's been a big thing for us. And I love it. I love it. I just love yeah. it. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not as uh, entrenched as you are in that, but I'm probably moving that way myself, Brian, honestly. You know, almost everybody is, you yeah. know, it, it, it's gone as low as it can go. <laughs> You're right. now, now people are, yeah. I mean, 10 years ago, no evangelicals were celebrating Ash Wednesday and Lent. Now it's increasingly common. It's become, and, and it, it, because it speaks to a yearning within us. Yeah, I want something that isn't just modern, contemporary, made up ten minutes ago. I yeah. want something that's well. We we I think we sense the need for more ritual. I mean, human beings are ritual creating beings. Yep, and if you don't latch on to a rich, established ritual, you'll you'll end up making up your own. But they'll be usually cheap and not very well thought out. And so I, I what's happened is people have gone so far, people have rebelled against any kind of tradition until they've come to the end of the line. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, maybe we do need some tradition. Sure. And, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And well, I, I could, we could go on and on about tradition and ritual and ceremony, which I, mm-hmm. I think is very important. Um, but uh, nonetheless, let's, let's dive into your book. The anticipated okay. Christ. I, I like the way you set it up, and I have some questions um, about it. So you're you, I love the way you camped out. First, you started with the uh, proto uh, evangelium, proto evangelium, uh, Genesis three fifteen, mm-hmm. um, and that that means the proto gospel, the the first good news. That's I know you know this, but you know not everybody knows that. No, no I want you. I'm I'm prom- I'm just setting you up, Brian. I'm just getting <laughs> you up. So. Yeah, and you start with that. I mean, why don't you give us a, a well? A okay, on that, and then and then we and then you move right into Isaiah, yeah, which, yeah. which you know I don't know about you, but Isaiah is the gospel of the Hebrew Bible. Of course, it is. You know, and it's just when you think about that being written when it was written, even if even if you go first, second, and third Isaiah, right, <laughs> right, <laughs> which I do, by the way. But, but regardless, the themes in it. I I think it's just it's 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 the most brilliant gospel centered thing in the Bible. I All think. right. So so what Advent the Bible, is the Hebrew Bible? Yeah. Yeah. Advent is not Christmas. 
it's anticipating Christmas. So we don't start with, you know, Christmas Eve. We don't start with, oh, it's, it's Christmas Day. Merry Christmas. Unwrap the presents. Okay, we're done. Get the tree out of here. Because there's the 12 days of Christmas. It turns out that the Christmas carol is true. <laughs> there's, it, it's a 12-day celebration. But it's anticipated for, we generally say, four weeks. But it always starts on a Sunday. So this year, it's as short as it can be. Because the right. fourth, I don't want to get bogged down on this. But this year, the fourth Sunday of Advent is Christmas Eve. So right. Really, only it's only three we're, weeks this year. We're lighting the fourth Advent candle Sunday morning, lighting the Christ candle Sunday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. churches that do this have to figure this out this year. <laughs> How are we going to do that? <laughs> yeah, we've had that discussion. Yeah. Um, so what I do, though, with this book, it's a, it's a series of uh, meditations. You know, they're like two or three pages long. You can read them in five minutes each, but each day. So the first day of Advent, you read one, and, then, and it takes you through Christmas all the way up to Epiphany which is January 6th. Uh, so you could figure out how many are in there. I can't right. in my head how many readings there are, but that's what it's about. Uh, and, but I start, you know, I start with, as you said, the proto evangelium. And then there's so much in Isaiah. Let me, can I say a little explain, bit about Isaiah? Well, explain Genesis 3.15 real quick. Okay. Yeah, the the proto evangelium, the first it's. And then do Isaiah. All right. You take you take Isaiah for the first two weeks of Advent. Mm -hmm. Then your third week of Advent, you switch over to the Gospels. Yeah. And then when Christmas Day hits, you end up doing the twelve days of Christmas, taking yeah. people to Epiphany. And so I kind of want because I'm I'm guessing a lot of people listening to this aren't familiar with the structure of of how you've structured yeah. your book and how that's all structured. So yeah, so it's I'm giving people something to do. Every day from the first Sunday of Advent all the way through to the day after, it would be like, think of it like the 13th day of Christmas, but it's called Epiphany, which has to do with oh, the Epiphany, the, the revelation. It, it's, it's a celebration of the revelation of Christ to the Magi, the wise men, which means it's the first revelation to the Gentiles that Jesus is the Christ. All right. So, so we start though with, with, Genesis 3.15, which is uh, in the wreckage, if you want to say it that way, of the Garden of Eden following the catastrophe, the fall. Uh, God is pronouncing out weighty judgments. And upon the serpent, and we're not told, you know, in, the, in, in Genesis, we're not told who the serpent is, how the serpent got there, or anything like that. We just know the serpent showed up and <laughs> creates trouble. Mm -hmm. And part of the judgment upon the serpent is... God says in reference to the serpent and the woman, he said, I'm going to put enmity between you and Eve, you and the woman, and between her seed and your seed. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. I mean, one level you could just read and go, so people don't like snakes. <laughs> True enough, in general. Uh, but in retrospect, these aren't predictions that you could have read then and predict exactly what happened. But in retrospect, you go back and, oh, oh, this, this is a prophecy of a wounded warrior who will vanquish evil. This is a prophecy of Christ, who through his cross triumphs over evil, but in the process himself is wounded because he's crucified, you know, and it's in his death and resurrection that ultimately uh evil is 
fatally undermined and will eventually be no more. So we talk about that the, the, the first day. And then there's so much in Isaiah. You know, I can't remember who it was. I think it was, I was one of the church fathers that gave us this term. I want to say it's Jerome, maybe, but I, but I could be wrong. One of them said, described Isaiah as the fifth gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Isaiah. Because <laughs> there's so much there. But it's interesting how you would read it. So the reading for today, the the, the Tuesday of the first week of Advent, mm-hmm. is the famous prophecy uh, in Isaiah 7 that okay, – I'm just – let me just sum it up real quick. Mm-hmm. So this was a time when uh, King Ahaz was king of Judah, and it looked like there was going to be an imminent invasion from – northern neighbors, Samaria and Assyria, and he's all anxious about it. And the prophet Isaiah says, ah, don't worry about it. It's never going to happen. Um, no, they're not going to invade. And here's the sign. Uh, the woman shall conceive and give birth to a child. You call him Emmanuel, God with us. And by the time he's weaned, these threats will be no more. Oh, all right. comes to pass. Well, Presumably, maybe it was his wife that he was speaking of, and this child is born. And by the time uh, a couple of years goes by, uh, 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 those those uh, threats are no more. Future so, king of Israel overthrows the threats or avoids. Yeah. yeah. So, so at one level, you read it like that. It, but then, in the in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible known as the Septuagint, it doesn't say young woman, it says virgin, the virgin shall conceive. Yeah. And then later Christians, wait, 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 that's talking about Jesus. Right. And so you couldn't have predicted the unfolding of the gospel necessarily by reading Isaiah, but in retrospect, you go back, oh, and there's so much that's there. Well, I think and, that uh, early church did all of that. Yeah, well, oh, they went back and reread the whole thing, right? It's the, well, yeah. for the first, you know, few decades, it's the only Bible they have is what we would call the Old Testament. Right. And they just called it the Bible. <laughs> it's yeah. the scriptures, you know, it's the Hebrew scriptures. Mm-hmm. Um but they read it, they were looking for Jesus in every little board in Noah's ark and the ark of the covenant and <laughs> <laughs> but they they were obsessive about finding Jesus there, and in some ways, it's a little. At times, it can it can feel a little bit crazy, a little maybe bit forced forward. at times. Yeah, but but I think ultimately, it is the way that Christians approach what we call the Old Testament. And and let me just make a little technical point here. Uh, I make a distinction. People say, "Oh, you shouldn't say Old Testament. You should say Hebrew Bible." See, I make a distinction between the two. The Hebrew Bible is the Hebrew Bible is the Hebrew Bible, and I have no business telling Jews how to read their Bible, uh, and it's just not for me to do. But there is a Christian reading of the Hebrew Bible, and I call that the Old Testament. So the Hebrew Bible is the Bible of the Jewish people, and they read it however they want to read it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not here to tell them they're reading it wrong, but I am saying that as a Christian, when I read the Hebrew Bible, it's all about Jesus, and so it's yeah. the first of the two testaments. You can yeah. call it first testament. You know, I don't, I don't see, I don't see Old Testament as pejorative though. Is it old? It's older, and then there's the newer one. It's new. Yeah, so, no, I, I don't. I just call it Hebrew Bible because I studied with so many Jewish people, right. and yeah. um, you know, the suffering servant. Really, I think the Proto Evangelion that you just mentioned 
um, Jewish people, Jewish scholars, rabbis would interpret mm-hmm. that the wounded suffering servant as Israel itself, right? Yeah. But oh, and I talk about that because there's, there's, I think we look at all in, in the, in the, um, in the book, I look at all of the suffering servant songs. Right. We touch on each one of them a little bit. Yeah. yeah every one of them. I, I love that, that you did that. Yeah. And it, and uh, it is Israel. I mean, I'm not saying that's wrong. Right. The it's, suffering it's, servant it's is Israel. And yet, and yet, right. <laughs> and yet, as a Christian theologian, I would also say, and, and? Israel becomes embodied. And it, it, Jesus Christ takes upon himself the vocation of Israel. Yes. To carry it through to fulfillment. That's that would be Christian theology. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still a I'm Jesus a- guy. <laughs> <laughs> Although I've, I've I rethought everything, but you know, <laughs> I still landed on Jesus pretty yeah. hard. So <laughs> yeah. So um well people ask me, you know, why why are you still a Christian? Because Jesus. <laughs> yeah. It's all about Jesus, man. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, so why and this this might be my I'm still trying to learn and deepen my own understanding of the liturgical tradition. Mm-hmm. So I'm you're you're way ahead of me in terms of the the diving into the depths of that. But um uh when the way you structured your your devotional book on the on Advent was the first two weeks you dive into Isaiah. And then mm-hmm. the third week you switch to the gospels and yeah. and with, so with one little stop in Micah, because I want to get yeah, the Micah, town of Bethlehem right. in there. Yeah, the Bethlehem, right. But you I love the I love the Isaiah thrust because it's just so amazing to go back yeah. and read Isaiah with Jesus in mind, you know. But then um why why the two weeks on Isaiah and then the shift on the third week? Was that just your own that's just my own, but okay. I wanted I wanted to I wanted to delve into all of these narratives uh, that lead up to the birth of Christ. So the you know the story of you know John the Baptist, Zachariah and Elizabeth, and all of that sort of stuff. I I, I wanted that to be there, and I you know and I want to look at the birth narratives it's that time of year i'm not going to be real fastidious about you know you can't even say merry christmas until <laughs> christmas no no i mean and so it's it's um well this is the second book that i've written like this i wrote one previously for lent called the unvarnished jesus and so i'd already done this with lent mm-hmm. and i thought ah oh, well let's People really like that because here's what I've learned, especially as a pastor, but people want you to help them. They, they, they don't want just endless, uh, vague exhortations. They want something to do. You know, mm-hmm. so what should I do during Lent? What should I do during Advent? I said, well, one of the things you can do is I've written a series of daily devotions. It mm-hmm. take you a few minutes to read them. Mm-hmm. Read the scripture passage and then read the meditation on it. That's something you can do. And you know what? People actually love that. They think, oh, that, I, I want to do that. And uh, and I'll tell you something. Uh, this, I, I read it myself. I mean, I guess I wrote it, but in Lent and Advent, I read my own devotional because yeah. I don't know. I, I, I want to be, I want to be led into that mystery too. Even though it's something I wrote, yeah. You know, you don't remember everything you have ever written or said, and you come back and you, and you, oh, that's that's a I like that insight. That's good. 
Yeah. And so I'm reading it myself. I just had a friend. I mean, look, it's got got the bookmark in it here for Tuesday. I've I've been reading it. So I just had a friend last Sunday who heard my message on, you know, uh, you know, I'm in the Christmas story now and Luke. I'm I'm focusing on Luke's Christmas story. I between Matthew and Luke each year. One yeah. year I focus more on Matthew and the other one I focus more on Luke. This year I'm focusing on Luke, but a guy posted like several quotes from my sermon on his Facebook page mm-hmm. and uh, tagged me on it. And I was like going, dang, that's good. I, that really blessed yeah. me right now. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> I need that. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll get that from the books I've written on social media and I'll see a quote, you know, cause they've tagged me. Right. And I go, I don't even remember writing that, but that's good. Yeah. Right. I, I, I wish I could remember that. That's good. I like that. You have people come up and tell you that <laughs> sermon that changed their life and you're trying to scratch your head. And, oh, yeah. Did I yeah. Say some, that? Someone, you'll, they'll find a sermon. They say, I've listened to that sermon 50 times. I said, well, you know way better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> it's I, I call it the. You, you you load your mind up, you preach it, and then it's purged, and then you load it up again, and you preach it. And well, yeah, and, and in writing, there are certain things that I write that are like, right, they're my wheelhouse. They're who I am, mm-hmm. and I could speak on it without any preparation. But there's other, you know, some days you're writing, and you may write a paragraph or a sentence or two. That was really the only time you ever had that thought. Mm. And then it, it didn't lodge, mm. but it might have been good. And then someone else finds it mm. and it, and then they send it back to you, as it were. And you go, oh, I don't even remember writing that, but I like it. That's actually a very good feeling. Yeah. And it's almost like, you know, people who write songs and then their songs go and touch people in all these places in their lives. And then yeah. they, they feed those, oh, your song did this to me. and you, in your mind, you never, ever in, even imagined that that song would travel to that yeah. person in that space and that, that context and touch of heart that way. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. I think it works that way with, with the Bible, with sermons, with everything that's got an artistic sort of creative edge to it, you know? Well, and, th- and this, is, <clears throat> this is the thing here, that our preaching should be an artistic endeavor. In its in its best form, the sermon belongs to uh, the world of art. Maybe more properly in the in the category of storytelling, if it's done well. Uh, and the Bible itself is, you know, it's not primarily it's it's not an encyclopedia of God facts. That's the fundamentalist approach to it. That's the biblicist approach to it, and it's. Uh, it's it's not a rich way of approaching scripture right that in their own right we'll just say this one matthew mark luke and john were artists yes. they were not now i'm not saying that they weren't i'm not saying they were propagating untruths don't don't hear me like that but they were not what we would call journalists that's not what they were trying to do they are bringing a theological slash artistic approach to the gospel story they're telling. And that's why they don't agree. Yeah. They don't like harmonize perfectly. Yes, yeah. they all agree that Jesus, the son of God, crucified and raised from the dead. They all agree on that. Yeah. But there's other things that they don't agree on because they have different emphases. So, for example, 
Yeah. And by, we're, we're, we're a little bit I, off here, but I think this is worth talking about. I want to inject here, but hold that thought. Don't, don't right. lose it. Um, when you switched from Isaiah to the new Testament and the third week of Advent and your devotions, you mentioned this thing because you, you referenced back to Tatian, I think is how you say his name, mm-hmm. who attempted a harmonization right. Right. of all four gospels very early on in the Christian tradition. It was rejected by uh, Irenaeus. I mean, the Irenaeus. church, but, but Irenaeus yeah. was the principal Irenaeus, spokesman. Who said, no, we need these four distinctive right. and strict histories. It's, it's not even biography like you pointed out right. exactly, right? So go ahead yeah. with the comment. Well, okay. That. So, because for example. A lot of people are always trying to harmonize and make everything. Yeah. yeah. And lose some of the brilliance of it, right? Right. So the synoptic gospels, as we call them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they're similar, uh, all have Jesus in varying degrees of agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. John, there is no agony. There's none. Um, in John's gospel, not only is there the temple police come, but a cohort, Roman cohort of 600 soldiers show up. You know, and you think that's, did, did Matthew, Mark, and Luke just miss that detail or something? That there was, uh, along with the temple police, there was a, there were 600 Roman soldiers. And when they say, you know, who are you looking for? And well, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. And they fall to the ground. None of that's it. Okay. So but what's the point here? Well, the there, there, there's, no, there's no transfiguration in John because the entire gospel of John is Christ transfigured. And so if you say, well, John, did that literally happen? Was it exactly if, – if I had been at – at the Garden of Gethsemane that night, would I have seen what you described? And I think John would say, what's wrong with you? I, I'm, I'm, I'm showing you what you should see. You should see who this is. And you, you could go this way. You could go, it's a prophecy that the Roman Empire is going to fall before Christ. And it did. So uh, these, these, that, like- these differences are not something to be embarrassed about. They're only embarrassed if you – if you take a fundamentalist approach, if you take an artistic approach, which is what is intended, you see the beauty of it. And and different – we're not taking photographs here. We, we have painters. So, if you had – you know, if you have Renoir and you have uh, Van Gogh and you have Rembrandt uh, and say, okay, here, you paint. And you show them the same thing. Paint this. Well, they're going to come out different. Yeah. And you want it that way. You know, I, do, I don't need – Van Gogh to look like Rembrandt, you know, so it's one thing. No, you you want their different perspectives because it's going to draw you into the story in a different way. I love talking about this. <laughs> well, and in, in the, you don't have to go to Easter for that stuff, like the Christmas story. Right. No, Luke, you know, you have Gabriel showing up to Zachariah, Gabriel showing up to Mary and Matthew. We've got an unnamed angel showing up to Joseph. And Gabriel yeah. doesn't show up in Matthew. You know, in in Luke, you've got in Matthew, you start off with a genealogy that's centered on David's dynasty. In Luke, you have a a genealogy that's almost at the back end of the story that focuses on Adam and the son of the son of. So, so for example, in Luke, there's a strong emphasis on Jesus born in Bethlehem, line of David, all that. John, even in John's gospel, there's this moment where. They're 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 saying, look, Jesus comes from Galilee. 
there's there's no prophecy about Messiah coming from Galilee. And, you know, we would say, no, he was born in Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem. John doesn't do that. John doesn't care. John says, if, if you ask, if you ask Mark where Jesus was came from, he'll say, I don't know. He, he I, I don't really care. I mean, he he starts with the baptism. Matthew and and Luke are going to tell you he was born in Bethlehem. John says, oh, you wonder where he came from? I'll tell you where he came from. He came from heaven. That's where he came from. And that's John's recurring theme about the origin of Christ. He comes from heaven. And uh, so that's an example of different emphasis. Yeah. Well, and you know, in Matthew's Christmas story, you've got that little prophecy about Nazareth, that Nazareth, mm-hmm. you know, that and right. everybody's tried to figure that out. What is that? You know, and sometimes there's a word play there with the Hebrew word. And yeah. Kind of stuff. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. The scholars aren't quite sure what, what, they what Matthew's by, intending by that. Exactly. But. Exactly. Yeah. But anyway, it's, it's fascinating to contrast the two stories and see, you know, there's no mad yeah. guy in, in, in uh, Luke's uh, Christmas story. You know, there's no shepherds and the angels showing up in Matthew's story. You know, it's, I mean, of course, of course, the Magi are faintly alluded to in Isaiah. And I, and I bring that out uh, that, that Matthew isn't just working from nothing. I mean, there is something in Isaiah about that. Well, you know, if you go back to numbers and the, some of the prophecies about the Messiah in numbers and the star, the, the mm-hmm. rising star, that star, and you remember the Balaam? Yeah, that? that's it. Uh, yep. So, exactly. It, so the Magi seeing the star and following is a type and shadow of the number story back there with, with God working through the outsider, the Gentile. Yeah. It's a type cat of... In the Hebrew Bible, you have these surprising moments where God works through the outsider, the Gentile, and the Gentile gets it more than. Yeah, that's a common theme. In the outsider yeah. gets it right. It's, mm-hmm. it's fun. It's that's fun stuff. But yeah, yeah, good. So you're you're you you bring out the distinctions in the first uh, in in those week three, four, five. Then you hit Christmas and you go to twelve days of Christmas. All right. And then take it to Epiphany on January 6th. So I've never, I've always kind of ended it at Christmas and then kicked into something post-Christmas. See, see we're real big at Word of Life about not doing that. Yeah. And that, <laughs> I've noticed that in your book. I just noticed that. And it's yeah. tell me why, tell me about that. Maybe I'll change my ways here in the future. Not well, I mean, next year, maybe. I mean, how I, big is it in the Christian story that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I'll do a little theology here. Yeah. Our salvation was 12 days of Christmas for me with this. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. Uh, The, 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 the moment the word assumes flesh, salvation is guaranteed. Now everything's going to play out. You know, there, there's going to be the there's going to be the life of Christ, and there's going to be his all that happens, his death, burial, resurrection. But it, the moment, let's say it this way: the moment the logos entered the game, it was a foregone conclusion that the world would be saved. And so, this is enormous. So, what are we going to do? We're going to have one feast day. We're going to celebrate it for one day. No, it's too big. It's going to be 12 days of celebrating. Um, Now, what's sort of lost to us, and I'm not advocating for it, so whatever, but 
if you go back in church history, the, the Orthodox still kind of observe it this way. But if you go back in church history, Advent was really a time of fasting. It was like a, it was like another Lent. Right. And so you're you're actually emphasizing the darkness. And, the, and the Eastern Orthodox and, and, and still that, does that, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. It, and the Christ so is not here. It, the fast, something fast. Great fast. Great fast. Okay, yeah. And uh, so, but but the great fast is followed by the great feast, and it's twelve days of of just celebrating, but also you know exploring the end. But what does it mean? What does it mean that God joined us? That God became one of us. He didn't, and he entered our world as one of us. He didn't, he didn't just burst forth from the heavens and overawing displays of grandeur and power. He entered the world through a birth canal, like each one of us. Entered this world as a helpless infant. So that's that's worth 12 days of not only celebration, but 12 days of, of meditating on that holy mystery. So, so we do that. And so like here, I mean, at Word of Life, our Christmas decorations, they stay up through Epiphany. <laughs> I mean, you know, you do what you want. But here at our, at our house, our Christmas tree stays up through Epiphany. And uh, so we're not we're not dragging it out to the ditch back behind my house uh, on January 26th. It stays up through January 6th because it's. It's a season of celebration, not just a day. It's a season. I, and I love I, it. I just I love remember it. where I read this, but I, I remember somebody had a line in a book, the light of the world squinting, you know, mm-hmm. the eyes of a little baby, you know, <laughs> like the newborn baby, you know, they can't quite mm-hmm. see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'd like so, to. So we, our staff at Word of Life Church, we give them a, a week off. I mean, they have the whole, you know, after it's, they have like a, a week. Mm-hmm. The, the church is closed, you know, and, and uh, you know, I mean, pastoral ministry is there for those that need it. But I mean, as far as like just the functioning in our, you've been in our coffee shop, bookstore, all that. Oh, that's closed. We take a week to just celebrate and mm-hmm. be with family. And I think it's, I think it, it's good that we model that and do that. And this, we, we don't know the exact origins of these, these Advent traditions, but it goes back at least. 500 AD or yeah. between three and 500 AD. Well, like yeah. I mean, they were, they were using the word, the, the new Testament books gain sort of a final endorsement in the festal letter, which means Christmas letter of Athanasius. And so this is, this is fourth century. So it goes way back. Mm-hmm. And what is and tell people what's epiphany for those of people like I grew up. I didn't. I would have never been able to tell you what epiphany was or what it <laughs> meant. So you know, the twelve days word becomes, yeah. flesh, and then epiphany is epiphany. eureka. <laughs> the epiphany is the, the revelation. And what is the revelation? It's the revelation of Christ to the Gentiles, thus d- memorialized or however you want to say it in the Magi. The these these wise men, these travelers from the east who discern in this. And then what's interesting is they're they're astrologers is what they are. You know, they they are they're not astronomers. I mean, they're astronomers in the sense that they're looking at the heavens, but they're also divining meanings from it, which, of course, is prohibited. (laughs) 
in in Jewish culture. You know, the, the Old Testament will have verses prohibiting that. And yet that's exactly as the story is told, how these magi from the east discern that a king has been born, king of the Jews in Judea, and this is an auspicious king worthy of the presentation of gifts. And so uh, we come up with the number three because of the three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Uh, but they actually were not told in the text that there was three. I think it's maybe the the Coptic church. I can't remember. One, one of the Eastern Orthodox branches says that there were, I think, 12. Now, Fred, for for 30 years, probably, we've had a huge Christmas Eve service at Word of Life. We still do. And it, and it, and it's three camels. I mean, we get camels and you can get camels. And uh, we have the Magi riding through the sanctuary on their camels. It's a it's a crowd pleaser. They love it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But but there, we're never going to have 12. <laughs> we're sticking with three. That's believe me. That's plenty yeah. of camels. Yeah. Yeah. So. I wrote a blog a couple of years ago, and it's it's kind of one of my favorites. I called it, um, I just called it Magi, non-Christian followers of Jesus. Yeah, right. And I dive into the the numbers uh, illusion that comes with that back mm-hmm. the, the the rising star and you know the whole context of the debate, you know, and yeah. it's those themes where the outsider sees it better than the insider. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Magi. I, I mean, you think about what did they, 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 they bowed in worship. Mm-hmm. They first of all they def, they saw God in nature. Yeah. And then they bow and worship, and then they give gifts. They got it. Yeah. And and, and the gifts are significant: gold, frankincense, myrrh. Yeah. Gold, okay, uh, that's a that's a gift fit for a king, right? You, people get that. So he's a king. Go frankincense. Frankincense is incense burned in temples around the world. So this is a gift fit for a god. Uh, you, you burn, you know, incense to the divinity. So king, god, myrrh. Myrrh is unusual. Myrrh was used as a burial spice. And you talk you talk about an unusual baby shower gift. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Here's some embalming fluid. Uh, but I think that the the message there is this is the king who is God, who is also mortal, who who joined. He's Emmanuel, not just with us in birth. He's going to be with us in death too. I mean, he's he's going to live as a human, including death, that he might undo death. And that now we're, now we're into Easter, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, but yeah, it's an interesting one for sure. So, um, as you have uh, dug into this and and kind of rooted this into the calendar of your church, um, what impact have you seen on your people in terms of the way they process through this? You can look at it this way: that we have two calendars. Because we have two different approaches. We, we have a secular calendar that, you know, tells us, okay, this is when your dentist appointment is and all that sort of stuff that we all agree on. And it enables us to coordinate our lives. But we also have another calendar that is not based on the secular calendar. This, we take the entire year. To, Jesus is so big, we're going to use Jesus to tell time. And 
so January 1 is not New Year's Day on the church calendar. It's the Holy Name Day. It's when Christ is given the name Yahshua, salvation of Jehovah. And our church has grown to love it. And I think it just helps. It helps provide a holy rhythm to their life. And it helps establish them in the Jesus story. The gospel is the story of Jesus. It, the gospel don't. The gospel is not a formula. Uh, I don't. I don't like the idea of okay. The gospel is the four spiritual laws or the Roman road or you know. No, 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 no. The gospel is the story of Jesus. And if we can keep the story of Jesus front and center in our life in some way or another. Uh, then our story begins to be unfolded into the gospel story of Jesus, and that's how we're being saved. And so the church calendar helps us to make the story of Jesus big and fill the whole year. And, you know, this week we are remembering when Jesus was baptized. That's our emphasis. This is this week we're remembering the transfiguration, you know. And so it's a way to keep the story of Jesus. And, and this guides our preaching. I alluded to this at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Rather than, you know, coming up with something clever and modern and and how to, you know, be a success in life and how to raise your kids and all that how to have a happy marriage. I mean, I'm for all that, I suppose, but it's not what I'm called to preach. Uh, I think that practical sermons are the bane of the church. I'm not, I'm not interested in preaching a practical sermon that you can apply to your life. I'm interested in attempting to fascinate people with the story of Jesus. And the Christian calendar helps us do that. And then, Dive in a little bit to your because I I I uh, listened to your sermon from last Sunday as well as I was preparing for this interview and you 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 brought in the idea of wonder and mystery and and um and and some uh, you know diving into the depths of this and it's like a diamond and it's multifaceted and every year you revisit it you see something yeah. new something touches you in a different way. There's the back to this artistic wonder you, but I love the way you brought out the, I, the idea of wonder. Why is wonder so important in this journey that we're on? Wonder is, is what we have naturally as children that for whatever reason we tend to lose as we get older. Uh, This is a deficiency. This is not something we should grow out of. Wonder belongs to, uh, it belongs to the realm of being converted and become as children so that you can enter the kingdom of heaven. Not childish, not childish, but a recovery of a certain kind of innocence that is capable of being astounded. I mean, Shouldn't a starry night always evoke some kind of wonder in you? It just do you ever just pause and go, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've been invited to the party, the phenomenon of, of existence. Every moment is actually wonderful, even when it's painful, even when it's hard. But I've been invited into the mystery of 
being. Mm. And it's this, the opposite of that is boredom. And then when we have boredom, um, Soren Kierkegaard said boredom is the root of all evil. <laughs> because because when when we can no longer access enchantment, wonder, mystery, awe, then we try to maybe artificially create that, and it usually ends up being self-destructive behavior. Mm. Uh, I had a mystical experience. I alluded to this 20 years ago in uh, July 24th, 2003 in the Rocky Mountains. What had happened, so, I mean, you know, that's kind of our place. We go out there several times a year and have for 30-some years. Mm-hmm. But there had been a big storm. And so, I went up Trail Ridge Road because I knew I knew what would happen. Everybody would be gone. And I, I just kind of knew what it would be like, you know, after a storm. A big thunderstorm had rolled through. And I drove up to this certain spot and then got out and hiked a little bit. I was at about 12,000 feet, and I just sat on this ridge, and I was facing west, looking at the Never Summer Mountains as the sun is setting, which I think the Never Summer Mountains is the greatest mountain range name ever. <laughs> I love that, Never Summer Mountains. And yeah. the sun was setting. No one's around. I'm all by myself. And about seven bull elk came up on that ridge, and they were, you know, they didn't care I was there. And there's these elk, and there's this gorgeous sunset, and the Never Summer Mountains. And just as the sun was dipping below the horizon, the sky was just on fire. You could still hear the thunderstorm back to the east because it didn't move in the east, and it was still thundering. You could hear it anyway. And just as just as the sun dips below the Never Summer Mountain horizon, this big bull elk lifts up his head, and the antlers form this perfect frame for this glorious sunset and it, it was to use a cliche it took it literally took my breath away it was mm. like mm. it was it was so beautiful mm. and i was so i had enough grace i suppose to be present in that moment to it and i knew that this was that i was privileged mm. to be there in that moment and i said out loud you could say it was a prayer i didn't really think of it as a prayer it was a prayer i didn't expect anything to come of it but I prayed, I said, God, I want to live my life in a constant state of wonder. Mm. I, I just, I just expressed, I didn't think there would be anything. And now, Fred, you, I think you know me well enough by now. I'm not a God told me, God told me, God told me, God told me kind of guy. You know, I don't do that. <laughs> but there are those moments. And I simply said, God, I want to live my life in a constant state of wonder. And a voice spoke to me. And it came from without. It wasn't, it wasn't in here. It came from elsewhere. I wasn't anticipating. I wasn't asking for an answer. I didn't expect one. But the voice said, this is the greatest wonder of all. The word became flesh. Mm. That was a life-changing moment. Mm. And that's, that's really because I, I, the thing is coming full circle here. Because mm. I started off talking about you know, what happened 20 years ago. This is just preceding that. Yeah. This is in July of 2003, and I started moving in this new direction. I think in the sermon I said that that wonder is the enchanted land where all good theology is born. I love that. And if we're not – if our theology doesn't proceed out of just a sense of awe and wonder, then it's going to be sterile. 
It's going to be academic and nothing else and, and, and ultimately boring. And what a sin for theology to be boring. <laughs> we, need, we need the ethics of Elfland. You remember that one from G.K. Chesterton? Anyway, no. Uh, yeah, I like that sense of wonder and awe from a child yeah, perspective. You know? and Chesterton's why, great on Christmas and well, all that stuff. But yeah. By the way, um, you know this better than me, but uh, you know the, the philosopher Rene uh, Descartes or no, Gerard? Gerard, who did. I, the I knew Gerard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I actually knew him. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember you saying that. So the first naivety, second naivety, am I getting. Is that's it? that's Paul Ricoeur that oh, comes up with with uh, sorry second yeah. naivete. Yeah. Yes, that's what that's part of what we're talking about. What, yeah, what, but, and I wanted to mention because you know I shared with you in 2019. I felt like an atheist. I had that dark mm, night where yeah. it didn't feel like God was All there, right. and then I've struggled with that for a while. You know, like I'm still, mm-hmm. and um, and you know I questioned everything, but I couldn't. I couldn't, you know, as much knowledge as I've got and as much science as I've read my whole life, you know, I've always been trying to integrate faith and science for my whole career. But uh, I love the way he he talks about the second night. So for our friends who have gone through a a deconstruction, I know you don't like that term, but, you know, who've gone through. I mean, I mean, I I, I accept it (laughs) where people have lost their faith and then move through life. But I find so many people, if you just keep loving people and even, you know, I kept myself included, it's like you start coming back to things, the new lens with a new, but that new sense of wonder, seeing things again, even, even if you've gone through a dark, dark night of the soul and even found yourself as an atheist or something or feeling that way, but there's a new, there's a new side of that, that second naivety. Mm-hmm. Let's close with some thoughts on that for all of our friends who might be listening, who have you know through those dark, dark times. We what? begin, yeah. we begin life enchanted. Children, you know, everything is is wonderful. I, I mean, in the sense of everything is a potential sense of deep wonder. Just you know, their backyard could be filled with who knows what. Uh, then we we grow out of that, and so we go from in, from an enchanted world. To a disenchanted world. And we fear that that's the end. That, oh, well, I, I wish I could go back, but I can't. And you can't necessarily go back. But Paul Ricoeur understood, and he was applying this to texts, but I think it has a broader application, that there is actually a possibility of the recovery of what he called, this is his term, a second naivete. It's not a naivete of ignorance. It's a naivete of willing to be enchanted once again by the story, by the text. And so I can tell you my my history with the Bible is something like this. I read it originally. As, I was never a fundamentalist in the classic sense. I'm just always too rock and roll for that. but. I did read the Bible on a rather literal level. I think that was inevitable. I don't think I could have started anywhere else. That's where I start. Uh, And then I, in my theological transition that began 20 years ago, I I read the Bible very analytically. And it was good. I don't, I don't have any, I love that. And I still like a lot of that. But, but now I, don't want that to be 
Look, I, I can I can do historical criticism with the best of them. I understand how to do that. I've read the books. The problem with that is, is it makes the Bible um, one thing, and once you've got that one thing, then you're done with it. And that's not how Scripture works. So today, for example, when I'm just reading the Bible, like like in the over there in that chair behind me, you see that. There's a, just a great big old King James Bible with a Gustave Doré engravings in them. And, I mean, I know all the translations. I know what it says. I have all the tools to access the Hebrew and the Greek. I just want to read in King James with beauty and mystery and let myself once again be enchanted. All of the scholarship, the learning, that 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 runs in the background. That's there, and I can access it whenever I want to. But... I want to once again be. I I want the Bible to be more like a professor's wardrobe that takes me to another world, rather than an academic text text that sits on a dissecting table that I'm slicing and dicing and cutting up. And I, I can do that. I understand it, and it has a certain value. And if you're going to be a scholar, I'm not a scholar, but if you're going to be a scholar, you have to go down that road. But I wouldn't want it to end there. And so I'm back to, I, I think I have arrived there where, where the Bible has the potential to be, hold on, a, to be an enchanted text once again. Here's okay. my book of the year. This is, this, this is my recommendation. Reenchanting the text, discovering the Bible is sacred, dangerous, and mysterious by Cheryl Bridges Johns. Okay. Cheryl Bridges Johns, she is a good friend. That is not why this is my book of the year. It's my book of the year because it's the best book I read this year, whether it was by a, an absolute stranger or a friend. Mm-hmm. She is a um, she is a Pentecostal scholar. Now, don't let them when I say Pentecostal, you go, oh, what kind of scholar is she? Oh, she's a scholar. You know, she's <laughs> she's a scholar and uh, a full on, you know, academic yeah. scholar. Um, like Gordon Fee and other people. Yes, yes, but, yeah. yes. She would she would be in that world. Right, right. Um, and um re-enchanting the text. Yeah. It's it's slightly academic. It's not necessarily I'm not saying that it's it's not a popular level book, but it's not inaccessible to people that are fairly competent in reading serious texts. I highly recommend that book. Well, and you know, I'm, the, I'm, I'm like a little an evangelist for that book this year. That's great. <laughs> it's I'll really go. I'll check it out. If you know her, then I'll get her on my pod. I'll read it and get her on my. Yes, pod. You, yeah. you should have her. You should. I'll tell you how so, to get a hold of her. Perfect. Perfect. Well, I and I, you know, I think even even you know, there's there's all kinds of craziness with the Pentecostal world, right? But there's also a mystical, experiential component to our our history with that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That I think can take us into all kinds of good places and connect us with a deep, rich tradition within the, the Christian world. You know, the, yes. the mystical Christian tradition, the contemplative tradition and all that is such a rich thing to be to be dove into, which, you know, uh, our some of our background didn't do that very well. Right. But right. <laughs> but but it adds a new dimension. And I think it helps with that second naivety. Um Mm-hmm. You've if you've if everything's fallen apart, um, if you move from simplicity to complexity to perplexity, as as Brian McLaren talks about, then finally yeah. you hit that second naivety with with a harmonization where you've where you reintegrate 
things yeah. and make them with new eyes and that those childlike eyes can come back again. And I, I, I cherish that. I don't want to ever lose that, you know? Amen. Amen. So thank you for bringing that out. Thanks for your time and appreciate all of your work and, you know, pastoring over the long haul, like you've done, Brian, is a, I, I understand that I made it almost 30 years at one church and, yeah. and then fell apart personally, but I understand the commitment, the love and the depth that it takes to pastor a local congregation that hard. You know, there's some people who've never pastored large churches who think that we're all just, you know, that's just easy. And, you know, we, we make a million bucks and, you know, we're mega church pastors and, and like, you're going, well, you know, I knocked on doors to start my church. Yes. I knocked on doors. You don't think I didn't knock on doors. I knocked on enough doors to put a Jehovah's witness to shame. (laughs) And to have a church of 3000 people, you probably had 30,000 vote. No, you know, (laughs) of course, of course. (laughs) And and there's pain in that, you know, and and rejection and the wear and tear and all the things that go on with, you know, just loving people over the long haul. Yeah. That's a pastor's heart. And you've done that. And I thank you. Thank you, Fred. Thank you. Blessings. All right. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in to spirituality adventures. Thanks, Brian, for being on here. And I'm going to encourage you get Brian's book and use it every day during not only the four weeks of Advent, but the 12 days of Christmas and Epiphany. All right. And you'll be the richer for it. So thanks, Brian, for providing us with some tools used to go deeper in this season. God bless. Thanks, everybody. Talk to you next time. Hey, you made it to the end. Thanks for listening all the way through on this episode. By the way, if you're not already a supporter, go to spiritualityadventures.com. Sign up for one of our monthly supports and you will receive our bonus content. You'll receive lots of interesting information about our guests. Many of our musicians will do special bonus songs and record a song. So I want to encourage you to do that. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Be sure and subscribe. Be sure and share any of the episodes that you like. And be sure and make comments if you like them as well. This helps us uh, get spirituality adventures out there to more listeners, more, more watchers. So whatever platform you're using, subscribe, like, share, make comments. And go to our website, sign up for our team and be a part of the team support. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next time.